Chapter Eleven, Part B of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Eleven, Part B. Paul only came to Les Peuples at very long intervals for the next three months, and even when he was there, it was only too plain that he longed to get away again as soon as possible, and that each evening he tried to leave an hour earlier. Jeanne imagined all sorts of things while the baron tried to console her by saying, There, let him alone. The boy is twenty years old, you know. One morning a shabbily dressed old man who spoke with a German accent asked for Madame la Vicomtesse. He was shown in and after a great many ceremonious bows pulled out a dirty pocket-book saying, I have a little paper for you, and then unfolded and held out a greasy scrap of paper. Jeanne read it over twice, looked at the Jew, read it over again, then asked, "'What does it mean?' "'I will tell you,' replied the man obsequiously. "'Your son wanted a little money, and as I know what a good mother you are, I lent him just a little to go on with.' Jeanne was trembling. "'But why did he not come to me for it?' The Jew entered into a long explanation about a gambling debt which had had to be paid on a certain morning before midday that no one would lend Paul anything as he was not yet of age, and that his honour would have been compromised if he, the Jew, had not rendered this little service to the young man. Jeanne wanted to send for the baron, but her emotions seemed to have taken all the strength from her limbs, and she could not rise from her seat. "'Would you be kind enough to ring?' she said to the money-lender at last. He feared some trick and hesitated for a moment. "'If I inconvenience you, I will call again,' he stammered. She answered him by a shake of the head, and when he had rung they waited in silence for the baron. The latter at once understood it all. The bill was for fifteen hundred francs. He paid the Jew a thousand, saying to him, "'Don't let me see you here again,' and the man thanked him, bowed, and went away. Jeanne and the baron at once went over to Havre, but when they arrived at the college they learnt that Paul had not been there for a month. The principal had received four letters, apparently from Jeanne, the first telling him that his pupil was ill, the others to say how he was getting on, and each letter was accompanied by a doctor's certificate. Of course they were all forged. Jeanne and her father looked at each other in dismay when they heard this news, and the principal, feeling very sorry for them, took them to a magistrate that the police might be set to find the young man. Jeanne and the baron slept at an hotel that night, and the next day Paul was discovered at the house of a fast woman. His mother and grandfather took him back with them to Les Peuples, and the whole of the way not a word was exchanged. Jeanne hid her face in her handkerchief and cried, and Paul looked out of the window with an air of indifference. Before the end of the week they found out that, during the last three months, Paul had contracted debts to the amount of fifteen thousand francs, but the creditors had not gone to his relations about the money, because they knew the boy would soon be of age. Poulet was asked for no explanation and received no reproof, as his relations hoped to reform him by kindness. He was pampered and caressed in every way. The choicest dishes were prepared for him, and as it was springtime, a boat was hired for him at Eport in spite of Jeanne's nervousness that he might go sailing whenever he liked, the only thing that was denied him was a horse, for fear he should ride to Havre. 
he became very irritable and passionate and lived a perfectly aimless life. The baron grieved over his neglected studies, and even Jeanne, much as she dreaded to be parted from him again, began to wonder what was to be done with him. One evening he did not come home. It was found on inquiry that he had gone out in a boat with two sailors, and his distracted mother hurried down to Eport without stopping even to put anything over her head. On the beach she found a few men awaiting the return of the boat, and out on the sea was a little swaying light, which was drawing nearer and nearer to the shore. The boat came in, but Paul was not on board. He had ordered the men to take him to Havre, and had landed there. The police sought him in vain. He was nowhere to be found, and the woman who had hidden him once before had sold all her furniture, paid her rent, and disappeared also, without leaving any trace behind her. In Paul's room at Les Peuples two letters were found from this creature, who seemed madly in love with him, saying that she had obtained the necessary money for a journey to England. The three inmates of the chateau lived on, gloomy and despairing, through all this mental torture. Jeanne's hair, which had been grey before, was now quite white, and she sometimes asked herself what she could have done, that fate should so mercilessly pursue her. One day she received the following letter from Abbe Tolbiac. Madame, the hand of God has been laid heavily upon you. You refused to give your son to him, and he has delivered him over to a prostitute. Will you not profit by this lesson from heaven? God's mercy is infinite, and perhaps he will pardon you if you throw yourself at his feet. I am his humble servant, and I will open his door to you when you come and knock. Jeanne sat for a long time with this letter lying open on her knees. Perhaps, after all, the priest's words were true, and all her religious doubts and uncertainties returned to harass her mind. Was it possible that God could be vindictive and jealous like men? But if he was not jealous, he would no longer be feared and loved, and no doubt it was that we might the better know him, that he manifested himself to men, as influenced by the same feeling as themselves. Then she felt the fear, the cowardly dread, which urges those who hesitate and doubt to seek the safety of church. And one evening, when it was dark, she stealthily ran to the vicarage and knelt at the foot of the fragile-looking priest to solicit absolution. He only promised her a semi-pardon, as God could not shower all his favours on a house which sheltered such a man as the baron. "'Still you will soon receive a proof of the divine mercy,' said the priest. Two days later, Jeanne did indeed receive a letter from her son, and in the excess of her grief she looked upon it as the forerunner of the consolation promised by the abbé. The letter ran thus, "'My dear mother, do not be uneasy about me. I am at London and in good health, but in great need of money. We have not a sou, and some days we have to go without anything to eat.' She who is with me, and whom I love with all my heart, has spent all she had, some five thousand francs, that she might remain with me, and you will, of course, understand that I am bound in honour to discharge my debt to her at the very first opportunity. I shall soon be of age, but it would be very good of you if you would advance me fifteen thousand francs of what I inherit from papa. It would relieve me from great embarrassments." Goodbye, mother dear. I hope soon to see you again, but in the meantime, I send much love to grandfather and Lisson and yourself. Your son, Vicomte Paul de la Mare.
Then he had not forgotten her, for he had written to her. She did not stop to think that it was simply to ask her for money. He had not any, and some should be sent him. What did money matter? He had written to her. She ran to show the letter to the baron, the tears streaming from her eyes. Aunt Lison was called, and word by word they read over this letter which spoke of their loved one, and lingered over every sentence. Jeanne, transported from the deepest despair to a kind of intoxication of joy, began to take Paul's part. "'Now he has written he will come back,' she said. "'I am sure he will come back.' "'Still, he left us for this creature,' said the baron, who was calm enough to reason. "'And he must love her better than he does us, since he did not hesitate in his choice between her and his home.' The words sent a pang of anguish through Jeanne's heart, and within her sprang up the fierce, deadly hatred of a jealous mother against the woman who had robbed her of her son. Until then her every thought had been for Paul, and she had hardly realized that this creature was the cause of all his errors. But the baron's argument had suddenly brought this rival, who possessed such fatal influence, vividly to her mind and she felt that between this woman and herself there must be a determined, bitter warfare. With that thought came another one as terrible, that she would rather lose her son than share him with this other, and all her joy and delight vanished. The fifteen thousand francs were sent, and for five months nothing more was heard of Paul. At the end of that time a lawyer came to the chateau to see about his inheritance, Jeanne and the baron acceded to all his demands without any dispute, even giving up the money to which the mother had a right for her lifetime. And when he returned to Paris, Paul found himself the possessor of a hundred and twenty thousand francs. During the next six months only four short letters were received from him, giving news of his doings in a few concise sentences, and ending with formal protestations of affection. "'I am not idle,' he said, I have obtained a post in connection with the stock exchange, and I hope some day to see my dear relations at Les Peuples. He never mentioned his mistress, but his silence was more significant than if he had written four pages about her. And in these icy letters, Jeanne could perceive the influence of this unknown woman, who was, by instinct, the implacable enemy of every mother. Ponder as they would the three lonely beings at the chateau could think of no means by which they might rescue Paul from his present life. They would have gone to Paris, but they knew that would be no good. We must let his passion wear itself out, said the baron. Sooner or later he will return to us of his own accord. And the mournful days dragged on. Jeanne and Lisson got into the habit of going to church together without letting the baron know, and a long time passed without any news from Paul. Then one morning they received a desperate letter which terrified them. My dear mother, I am lost. I shall have no resource left but to blow out my brains if you do not help me. A speculation which held out every hope of success has turned the wrong way, and I owe eighty-five thousand francs. It means dishonor, ruin, the destruction of all my future if I do not pay. And I say again, rather than survive the disgrace, I will blow my brains out. I should perhaps have done so already had it not been for the brave and hopeful words of a woman whose name I never mentioned to you, but who is the good genius of my life. I send you my very best love, dear mother. Good-bye, perhaps forever. Paul. 
Enclosed in the letter was a bundle of business papers giving the details of this unfortunate speculation. The Baron answered by return post that they would help as much as they could. Then he went to Havre to get legal advice, mortgaged some property, and forwarded the money to Paul. The young man wrote back three letters full of hearty thanks, and said they might expect him almost immediately. But he did not come, and another year passed away. Jeanne and the Baron were on the point of starting for Paris, to find him and make one last effort to persuade him to return, when they received a few lines saying he was again in London, starting a steamboat company which was to trade under the name of Paul Delamar and Company. I am sure to get a living out of it, he wrote, and perhaps it will make my fortune. At any rate, I risk nothing, and you must at once see the advantages of the scheme. When I see you again, I shall be well up in the world. There is nothing like trade for making money nowadays. Three months later, the company went into liquidation, and the manager was prosecuted for falsifying the books. When the news reached Le Peuple, Jeanne had a hysterical fit which lasted several hours. The Baron went to Havre, made every inquiry, saw lawyers and attorneys, and found that the Delamar Company had failed for 250,000 francs. He again mortgaged his property and borrowed a large sum on Les Peuples and the two adjoining farms. One evening he was going through some final formalities in a lawyer's office, when he suddenly fell to the ground in an apoplectic fit. A mounted messenger was at once dispatched to Jeanne, but her father died before she could arrive. The shock was so great that it seemed to stun Jeanne, and she could not realize her loss. The body was taken back to Les Peuples but the Abbé Tolbiac refused to allow it to be interred with any sacred rites, in spite of all the entreaties of the two women. So the burial took place at night without any ceremony whatever. Then Jeanne fell into a state of such utter depression that she took no interest in anything, and seemed unable to comprehend the simplest things. Paul, who was still in hiding in England, heard of his grandfather's death through the liquidators of the company, and wrote to say he should have come before, but he had only just heard the sad news. He concluded, Now you have rescued me from my difficulties, mother dear. I shall return to France, and shall at once come to see you. Towards the end of that winter, Aunt Lisson, who was now sixty-eight, had a severe attack of bronchitis. It turned to inflammation of the lungs, and the old maid quietly expired. I will ask the good God to take pity on you, my dear little Jeanne were the last words she uttered. Jeanne followed her to the grave, saw the earth fall on the coffin, and then sank to the ground, longing for death to take her also that she might cease to think and to suffer. As she fell, a big, strong peasant woman caught her in her arms and carried her away as if she had been a child. She took her back to the chateau, and Jeanne let herself be put to bed by this stranger, who handled her so tenderly and firmly, and at once fell asleep for she had spent the last five nights watching beside the old maid, and she was thoroughly exhausted by sorrow and fatigue. It was the middle of the night when she again opened her eyes. A night lamp was burning on the mantelpiece, and in the armchair lay a woman asleep. Jeanne did not know who it was, and leaning over the side of the bed, she tried to make out her features by the glimmering light of the night lamp. She fancied she had seen this face before, but she could not remember when or where. The woman was quietly sleeping, her head drooping on one shoulder, her cap lying on the ground and her big hands hanging on each side of the armchair. 
She was a strong, square-built peasant of about forty or forty-five, with a red face and hair that was turning grey. Jeanne was sure she had seen her before, but she had not the least idea whether it was a long time ago or quite recently, and it worried her to find she could not remember. She softly got out of bed and went on tiptoe to see the sleeping woman nearer. She recognized her as the peasant who had caught her in her arms in the cemetery, and had afterwards put her to bed, but surely she had known her in former times, under other circumstances. And yet perhaps the face was only familiar to her because she had seen it that day in the cemetery. Still, how was it that the woman was sleeping here? Just then the stranger opened her eyes and saw Jeanne standing beside her. She started up and they stood face to face, so close together that they touched each other. "'How is it that you're out of bed?' said the peasant. "'You'll make yourself ill, getting up at this time of night. Go back to bed again.' "'Who are you?' asked Jeanne. The woman made no answer, but picked Jeanne up and carried her back to bed as easily as if she had been a baby. She gently laid her down, and as she bent over her, she suddenly began to cover her cheeks, her hair, her eyes with violent kisses, while the tears streamed from her eyes. "'My poor mistress, Mademoiselle Jeanne, my poor mistress, don't you know me?' she sobbed. "'Rosalie, my lass,' cried Jeanne, throwing her arms round the woman's neck and kissing her, and clasped in each other's arms, they mingled their tears and sobs together. Rosalie dried her eyes the first. Come now, she said, you must be good and not catch cold. She picked up the clothes, tucked up the bed and put the pillow back under the head of her former mistress, who lay choking with emotion as the memories of days that were past and gone rushed back to her mind. How is it that you have come back, my poor girl? she asked. Do you think I was going to leave you to live all alone now? answered Rosalie. Light a candle and let me look at you, went on Jeanne. Rosalie placed a light on the table by the bedside, and for a long time they gazed at each other in silence. "'I should never have known you again,' murmured Jeanne, holding out her hand to her old servant. "'You have altered very much, though not so much as I have.' "'Yes, you have changed, Madame Jeanne, and more than you ought to have done,' answered Rosalie, as she looked at this thin, faded, white-haired woman, whom she had left young and beautiful." "'But you must remember, it's twenty-four years since we have seen one another.' "'Well, have you been happy?' asked Jeanne, after a long pause. "'Oh, yes, yes, madame. I haven't had much to grumble at. I've been happier than you, that's certain. The only thing that I've always regretted is that I didn't stop here.' She broke off abruptly, finding she had unthinkingly touched upon the very subject she wished to avoid. "'Well, you know, Rosalie,' One cannot have everything one wants, replied Jeanne gently. And now you too are a widow, are you not? Then her voice trembled as she went on. Have you any, any other children? No, madame. And what is your, your son? Are you satisfied with him? Yes, madame. He's a good lad, and a hard-working one. He married about six months ago, and he is going to have the farm now I have come back to you. Then you will not leave me again? murmured Jeanne. No fear, madame, answered Rosalie in a rough tone. I've arranged all about that. And for some time nothing more was said. Jeanne could not help comparing Rosalie's life with her own, but she had become quite resigned to the cruelty and injustice of fate, and she felt no bitterness as she thought of the difference between her maid's peaceful existence and her own. 
Was your husband kind to you? Oh, yes, madame, he was a good, industrious fellow, and managed to put by a good deal. He died of consumption. Jeanne sat up in bed. Tell me all about your life and everything that has happened to you, she said. I feel as if it would do me good to hear it. Rosalie drew up a chair, sat down, and began to talk about herself, her house, her friends, entering into all the little details in which country people delight, laughing sometimes over things which made her think of the happy times that were over, and gradually raising her voice as she went on, like a woman accustomed to command, she wound up by saying, Oh, I'm well off now. I needn't be afraid of anything. But I owe it all to you she added in a lower, faltering voice. And now I've come back, I'm not going to take any wages. No, I won't. So if you don't choose to have me on those terms, I shall go away again. But you do not mean to serve me for nothing, said Jeanne. Yes, I do, madame. Money. You give me money. Why, I've almost as much as you have yourself. Do you know how much you will have after all these loans and mortgages have been cleared off and you have paid all the interest you have let run on and increase? You don't know, do you? Well then, let me tell you that you haven't ten thousand livres a year, not ten thousand. But I'm going to put everything straight, and pretty soon, too. She had again raised her voice, for the thought of the ruin which hung over the house and the way in which the interest money had been neglected and allowed to accumulate roused her anger and indignation. A faint, sad smile which passed over her mistress's face angered her still more, and she cried, "'You ought not to laugh at it, madame. People are good for nothing without money.' Jeanne took both the servant's hands in hers. "'I have never had any luck,' she said slowly, as if she could think of nothing else. "'Everything has gone the wrong way with me.' My whole life has been ruined by a cruel fate. You must not talk like that, madame, said Rosalie, shaking her head. You made an unhappy marriage, that's all. But people oughtn't to marry before they know anything about their future husbands. They went on talking about themselves and their past loves like two old friends. And when the day dawned, they had not yet told all they had to say. End of chapter 11, part B